You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Wait, I thought that you all knew why we were doing this to ourselves. I'm Shauna McGuire. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Rowena Miller. And this is episode 113, Trust Your Instincts. Welcome back, Shannon. It is wonderful to have you back on the program. It's been a hot minute, but it's fantastic to have you back. How have you been? Why do we say hot minute? I don't understand that I don't phrase. Because <laughs> I dropped it. It was so it hot was. that I just hot dropped it. Um, I have been very busy and very tired. That is the majority of my life is busy and tired. Relatable. So. so for our listeners who um, may be just joining us now or catching up um, since the last time that you were on, would you mind giving us a quick introduction of yourself and and what you do? So I'm Shauna McGuire. I write things. It is exceptionally difficult to make me stop. When I am not writing things, I am generally located in either a swamp or the nearest cornfield, haunting things and just sort of lurking about. Uh, The pronunciation of my name is much more straightforward than people think it is. If you had a friend named Sean and you wanted them inside your house, you'd say to let Sean in. So uh, that is is basically how we roll here is just Sean in. Um, And I write a lot of books, far too many books. I have no chill when it comes to the writing of books uh, to the point that there are three of me. I am also Mira Grant and A. Deborah Baker. Excellent. And... Not that we expect you to list off your entire catalog of work your at gods, this point, no. but what are, no, we won't do that. <laughs> um, but since you've been on, what are a couple of the more recent releases that folks should be looking for from you? Uh, so I have this exciting issue that I know Marshall sometimes has too, where I'm primarily a series author. So like my most recent release is called Sleep No More. And if you have not read the October Day books, please don't read it. It's book 17. (laughs) It will make no sense. My publicists will keep trying to convince you that it's a great starting point. It is not. I did not write it to be a great starting point. It makes no sense. Please read Rosemary and Rue, which came out in 2009, but makes sense because it's the first book. So my most recent release is a terrible place to start uh, with anything I've done. Uh, The release prior to that... I have no idea what it was. Time is broken. And I made some mistakes in 2022. A couple things got moved around on publisher levels and everything shifted. And 2023 turned into a nine book year for me. So I no longer remember the order of release for most things. Um, I'm pretty sure Backpacking Through backpacking through Bedlam was, if not the previous release, then close to it. And you shouldn't read that one either you should read Discount Armageddon because they are later books in ongoing series and it will just make you sad and angry at me. And I don't like that. <laughs> so what we're saying is, dear listeners, that if you want to get into some of Shannon's stuff, start with the earlier stuff and there's a lot to get to and you'll enjoy all of it. Start at the so, beginning and you can also watch me improve go. as you go, which is very nice for all of us. It's a good time. So 
since you have have come on before and we've picked your brain on kind of the fundamental world building stuff, I just have a fun question. It's just what is something that you like delighted yourself world building wise in um, one of your books, especially one of the more recent ones, but not necessarily that. What's just something that like tickled you? You're like, I did that. And I'm very glad that I did. So um, the Toby books are basically a long attempt to validate my college career. I went to the University of California, Berkeley, Go Bears, for a dual major in folklore and herpetology, which is not a super useful degree. It does not do a lot in this modern world, but I have more folklore texts than many actual libraries. And I like to write stuff that makes my accountant less angry at me for buying them. So the Toby books are just a big, long expansion of my bachelor's thesis. Uh, and, and that delights me endlessly, just mix mastering all of this old fairy lore and finding new ways to fit it together that actually do make sense. Uh, and this is a very vague non-answer because most of the things where I'm like, I was so proud of myself, that was so cool, are 30 minutes of me explaining why it's cool, <laughs> and then 10 seconds of it being cool, which is not cool. <laughs> I, I feel like it might be the very definition of a certain kind of cool. That's pretty much the underlying thesis of this podcast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is 30 minutes of explaining to get to the 10 seconds of yes. cool. <laughs> So, because I also, I, I love folklore. I love, I love especially fairy folklore. What is one of your favorite little like bitlets of fairy folklore, whether you've gotten to shove it into a book or not? The fact that fairies would have been much better neighbors if they had just had access to the formula aisle at the drugstore. Like if you look <laughs> at a large number of the negative interactions between fae and humans, they frequently start off because the fae have just, fucked off with some lady to breastfeed their babies and you do need the babies to eat but it's kind of a problem maybe there would be fewer instances with people marching on the Canuck machine to try and burn them down if they weren't kidnapping ladies all the time get some simulac and this we're fine Weren't they also kidnapping the babies, and that's why they needed to feed the babies? I mean, or... occasionally, but a lot of the time it was feeding their own <laughs> children that they would actually go to get a human wet nurse for. I, I decided for, for my fairy book that the, the changeling thing is just, that's just, that is slander, Marshall. We didn't actually do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> See, this is, I, I, I am yes, not a folklorist, yes. so yep. therefore I, I yeah. am... Woefully I do, I do, I do like the, uh, I do like the changeling myths, though. They are fun. After having... After having had kids of my own, because you have those moments where like they go through these weird growth spurts or they'll have about a colic or whatever, and you're like, This is not my baby. What <laughs> occurred? And so I like understand where the story comes from because Yes, you want to explain that in some way. You do. So we wanted to talk about trusting world building instincts today and kind of developing a good a good gut and trust for what you do. But where do you all think that good instincts for world building come from? Is it something that is in the blood or is it developed over time? Or what is it that gives you good, good world building instincts? I think curiosity is a big part of it. And, you know, basically everyone is curious. It's just that you spend a lot of your school career being yelled at for being curious about things, for asking too many questions or digging the wrong holes. So you learn how to squash that down. 
there's no in the blood. There's just how good are you at unearthing your natural curiosity and letting it do what it wants? Because a lot of good world building is going to come down to identifying things and then chasing them until you can force them to make sense. Uh, so curiosity and cussedness. <laughs> I will make this make sense if it kills me. Yes, general tenacity seems to come up in a lot of different yes. writing <laughs> writing necessities. No, I totally agree about curiosity. Um, <laughs> and I think that curiosity for connections, like why is this thing the way that it is? You know, mm -hmm. like I want to know what this is, but then I want to know why it is the way that it is. And then, right. you like, know. I don't know. Do we actually have video or are we audio only? We're, we're audio only. Okay, so as this is going on, I am holding a cat. <laughs> It's a beautiful gorgeous cat. It's a very one. fluffy cat. It's it's a Maine Coon. And the Maine Coon is a beautiful example of environmental world building. The Maine Coon is the largest breed of domestic cat, and they are the only North American land race breed, which means that they basically did their own um, selective breeding to make themselves what we now call the Maine Coon cat. And when you look at one of these, they have abnormally large ears with a large quantity of what's called ear furnishings, the hair inside the ears. They have a wider spread of whiskers than any other kind of cat because the whiskers have to be as wide as the narrowest part of the cat's body. They have an abnormally long tail and they have a triple coat that is actually water resistant on the top layer and is shorter on the belly than anywhere else. And that way they can live in wooded areas and snow without picking up too much detritus in their tails. And they can wrap that tail around their feet to prevent frostbite during the winter. This is what happens when you let cats loose in the woods of Maine and tell them not to die. <laughs> Everything about the Maine Coon is tailored to survive in its natural environment. Even though we know that they weren't here before the European colonists came over and they got released during shipwrecks. And I love the fact, by the way, listeners, you couldn't see this, but the, the cat was very patient for like 90% of the demonstration of this. And I feel like we may we may have to Sean and take pictures of, of Kitty to post with the episodes that everyone. Oh, she is enjoy. so mad at me now. <laughs> um, I didn't even get to the feet because when you look at a Maine Coon's paws, they are larger than any other kind of cat's paws, and they have thick tufting between the toes so they can walk on snow. And you can look at one of these cats and tell everything you need to know about its environment. They are world building that purrs and occasionally hits me in the head while I'm trying to sleep. The, the hitting in the head is another <coughs> feature of the Maine Coon, I'm sure. It really is. We're not sure what it does, but it's important. It's, it's an important. adaptation to acquire food. Yes. Though, I mean, just uh, on the level of, like, if you're doing any sort of, like, secondary world fantasy world building and you have cats and you have dogs or whatever, like, whatever breeds you have are going to be, like, to create the breeds that fit the environments that you're in to be, they wouldn't necessarily be the exact same breeds you have here and you wouldn't call you wouldn't call a jack russell terrier a jack russell terrier in a fantasy world mm -hmm. because who the heck is jack russell right <laughs> it's like you don't have maine how can you have a maine coon but you can have something that adapted the same way as a maine coon well and then you also get the question of are you talking about land race breeds or developed breeds right because the maine coon is a land race breed humans didn't make any of these decisions the environment made the decisions the sphinx the hairless cat the one that looks kind of like a very friendly scrotum 
Those are a developed breed. There was a single cat with a mutation that caused it to have no fur. And people thought, oh, that's cool. We should do more of that. And they bred them on purpose. They're from Toronto. <laughs> this is not a reasonable place for hairless cats to be from. So if you're putting cats in your fantasy world, you'll probably have a couple of land race breeds, but you'll also have the ones where people decided it would be cool to have a cat that looked like this and bred for specific reasons. And we see those with dogs too. The French bulldog was developed to be a companion to ladies who were lace makers. And a lot of the attributes of the dog can be sort of intuited by saying, and the lace making ladies had dogs that accompanied them. What is that dog going to need to have? You can almost build a French bulldog from that question. It's fun too, because you can ask the question of what happens after the thing gets developed and, mm -hmm. and does it does it maintain those conformities or as time goes on, does the breed change? Like there are a lot of breeds of dogs that are different now than they were 200 years ago because of continued breeding um, and changes. It's funny, we were talking before we started recording, my, one of my cats is tailless. And everyone always asks when I just have a tailless cat, oh, is it a Manx? No, she's just a street cat. We have no idea if she has any pedigree whatsoever, but one of the most common mutations for cats is taillessness. Mm -hmm. And so in, it's typically a dominant mutation. So if it happens, the majority of kittens are going to carry it on. So if you have an island, you can end up with all tailless cats rather easily over the course of time, um, which has happened, I guess, in some islands in Indonesia, that they have all, yep. almost all tailless cats, except for new introductions or the random tailed cat that pops up from way back when, dormant genes. And there are a variety of mutations that will show up repeatedly without connection. So you can have tailless cats in one place and then have them again in another place with no shared ancestors at all. Exactly. And I think now that we've gone down the rabbit hole of cat genes, this is just a demonstration of being curious. And then I think also like having, I, I don't know, like a weird storage system in your brain where like the stuff just gets lodged and for some reason it like comes out again usually at inopportune times like cocktail parties where you're trying to make small talk and instead you're like, did you know that the most common mutation for cats is taillessness? And people are like, I, who are you? Mm -hmm. Why are you talking to me? But it comes in handy when, when you are developing worlds and writing. It does. So a lot of world building is just asking yourself questions and then following the logical answers. That will occasionally take you to a place that you don't really want to be. And that's where you have to make your choices and back out as necessary. But the initial stages are so much about, can I just ask endless questions? Well, how am I going to get a cat with a triple coat? Would that evolve in California? How's that going to happen? How do you think that people, since we acknowledge we often get curiosity kind of beaten out of us by schooling and by life, how do you suggest that people like cultivate curiosity? I don't really know, sadly. I am an innately, endlessly curious person. I wish to know things. I wish to understand things. And I want things to make sense. Um, I play a lot of D&D, &D, and the quickest way to get me mad at a campaign is to give me a shallow setting where they've just made decisions based on aesthetics, and they don't want to support them, and they don't want to explain them. Uh, so that means you've got a setting that looks good, but doesn't actually make sense. I don't enjoy that. It makes me grumpy. 
Um, you know, that said, I am not a neurotypical person. I think anyone who has spoken to me for 36 seconds can figure that out. And I did not do well on the, did they kill your curiosity tests? Yeah, I, I did really say. well on the reading the encyclopedia for fun tests. Yes, I was going to say, I don't know if, if we're the best group of people to give advice because I, I'm constantly asking why. Yeah. But there are so there are so many places that you can seek, you know, satiation for curiosity, which I find the more I learn about something that I want to know more. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's there's such a brilliant wide world out there of places that you can go and like get inspired to ask questions and poke further. I was talking to one of my coworkers. I teach um, English at oh, college. Neat. And I was kind of lamenting to a coworker just how many students don't seem to like turn to finding an answer as like the first step when they discover something they don't know. So like we'll be reading an essay and they'll stumble across some reference to a person they haven't heard of. And like my first impulse when I was a student would have been like either go look it up right now and I would have had to restrain myself and like highlight it and come back to it later, right? Partially because when I was going to school, like we did have the internet, but it was still like a, you have to stop and look this up mm -hmm. kind of a situation, not like pull out your phone. And I was like, how, 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 how to encourage that, you know, like you have the literal world in your pocket with a cell phone. You can literally find any information that you want. Like, how are you not looking things up all the time? Well, I think if anything, that has actually made it harder to research, which is a weird statement, but the growth of spicy autocorrect news articles and anyone who wants to edit Wikipedia being able to, it is very possible to go to your search engine of choice, type in your question, look it up like everyone is telling you to and get the wrong answer. And there are a lot of people who will take you looking something up when they have firmly stated something as an insult. Like you're saying, oh, I don't trust you. When it's not that, it's that I don't, I don't trust, trust your research. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it doesn't take very many smacks for providing incorrect yeah. information when you thought you had the correct information to start losing that impulse. Um, books are not innately correct. You get a lot of bad information in books, but someone who has gone through the trouble of researching it, writing it, and getting it published is marginally more likely to be correct than that random news result you got off of Google. This is true. I also wondered if there's an element of when it is so easy just to look it up, if it somehow dampens the curiosity a little bit. Mm -hmm. That like when I was a kid and had to go pull the dictionary off the shelf and search through it to find the word I didn't know, if that sort of helped to engender a habit of curiosity. If you but, have to really earn it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. I was like, I don't, I don't know. But <laughs> I don't think there is any knowing. I'm curious about I'm curious about it. See, right. the problem. I'm curious <laughs> about curiosity. If we are going to be instinctive in our world building, one thing you mentioned, Sean, and I think that we should loop back to is making things make sense and like using logic. Mm -hmm. What does that look like for both of you? I know for me, it's a big thing of like, how do people actually live day to day? I mean, I've gotten plenty mad at various fantasy books where you have like some city that's in the middle of a desert and on top of a mesa a mile high and, you know, <laughs> and you're like, but how do they get water? How do they get food? How do they like, how do they go through day to day? But 
it's the exact same thing you were saying of like, you know, aesthetically, that's really cool. It's a city on top of a mesa in the middle of a desert that, you know, nobody can easily reach. But when you, you know, break it down for half a second, then it falls apart. And so it's things like that are the things that sort of drive me crazy. And I always want to at least have an understanding of how the world really works and how the average person can get up and, you know, and not end up dead because there's no infrastructure. Yeah, very similar here. I want to understand things that may or may not ever matter in the books themselves uh, because the world will work better. People will like it more if it falls together, if it falls together and makes sense. And some of that is taking things from the real world. And some of that is, is throwing things out. You know, I, have a great fondness for the hemorrhagic fever theory of bubonic plague, even though that has been more and more disproven. Uh, at this point, we will never know for certain. There's like a 90% chance that I'm wrong about the origins of the bubonic plague. Uh, but it's a nice thing to fuss with, and it makes me happy. If the hemorrhagic fever theory of the bubonic plague is correct, then any resurgence of the original causative agent would kill members of most ethnic groups due to a lack of prior exposure. I had an editor at one point who was like, you do better books when you're really passionate about the topic. You love the bubonic plague. Why don't you write that book? And I'm like, because I'm not writing a book about a disease that kills everyone but the white people. <laughs> and he basically went, I, what, uh, yeah, no, please don't write that. That would be very bad for, for both of us. And I'm like, but you really wanted me to. You can't, can't you change the science? No, I cannot change the science. The science already makes sense and I'm not going to break something that makes sense. But if you want something in your world, I want you to explain to me why you have it, why you've earned it. Um, I don't care for quote unquote, historical books that use entirely modern language and concepts and want us to think about things in a modern way. Yes, that is what a modern audience expects. And that is what a modern audience will find pleasant and non-insulting. And that's good. But are you going to show me how you've earned a completely non-racist world in 1862? Are you going to show me how you have earned 100% modern queer theory in 1784? Because if you're not willing to put in the work, then you have too many potato problems. Uh, are you familiar with the concept of the potato problem? I, I, you know, I believe we may have talked about it the last time that you were here. Oh, we Sean, probably did. So, it's... Some of our some of our listeners may not recall that since they may not have heard that one. So. Please. The potato, potato problem away. The potato <laughs> problem is essentially that Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you get a lot of people saying, oh, you can't have black hobbits. You can't do this. You can't do that. It's changing the original. But they have no problem with potatoes and tomato sauces, even though the Lord of the Rings is set in a very thinly modified fantasy Europe. And those plants did not exist there. We didn't have access to those for use in, use in cooking outside of North America until colonization happened and those plants spread. And those aren't plants that just happened. Those are things that were cultivated and created by indigenous populations over centuries. So there should be no, no potatoes in the Shire. If there are potatoes in the Shire, you have already introduced a glitch in your world building. You really only get one, and that is probably the only one I'm going to give you. I think it's kind of an interesting thing too that almost anything that we end up doing with world building um, is going to be under a translation effect to mm -hmm. some 
degree, right? So in some ways, I'm willing to like look at the potatoes and be like, they are a tuber of some kind grown in this fantasy place. And we're going to use the word potato because that word makes sense to to an audience. Like I can I can I can give myself that like lens give yourself to that push grace. things through, you know, that I can like, okay, I can read it that way. But it still has to like work logically. And I think mm-hmm. that you're absolutely right that one of the things that drives me nuts when people will talk about, um, especially fantasy that's based in a historical time period or is set in a particular historical time period in world is like, well, you can't complain about the authenticity because it's fantasy. It's like, but you can still have the authenticity in world of whether or not these things fit together, right? Can you have this technological advance without having had these technological advances that kind of, you know, led up to getting that one. Yep. Um, or like you were saying, when it comes to, you know, in, in our own world, how we think about things, like how, how you are jumping from, you know, a understanding of say gender in 1780 to today requires a lot of iterations of understanding that immediately inserting something like you, again, you have to earn it. You have to show me Mm -hmm. how you're getting there or else it just doesn't, there's still a question of authenticity, even if it's fantasy and there are fairies and dragons and whatever else. I argue with people about bras in D&D a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Okay. So the idea that the corset is innately uncomfortable and is something no one would voluntarily wear is very much (laughs) a creation of the people that were trying to get bras to catch on as the big new, the the big new underwear thing. And they did a really good job. And if you've never worn a properly fitted corset, if you've only been laced up once by a friend for the Ren Faire in something that wasn't actually shaped to your body, yeah, that's uncomfortable. If you've ever put on a bra that was two cup sizes too small, yeah, that's uncomfortable. Things should fit or they're going to hurt. But the bra manufacturers really sold this myth that corsets are innately uncomfortable. Bras only exist because World War II came with massive materials and metals shortages and forced people to try and find a new way to provide people that had large breasts with back support. Medically speaking, a corset is better for you in most circumstances. It provides more back support and more core stabilization than the bra does because it is encompassing the trunk. D&D is set in a pseudo-medieval time. It's not a real time period. Technically, you can have squirt guns and bras and anything else you want. But if you want to have bras and not have had the in-world equivalent of World War II and not be willing to explain to me how the 300-year elf dwarf war led to a massive shortage of the metal that was used for corsetry stays and you know you already had halfling green piece keeping you from whaling so you couldn't put whalebone stays in your corsets either i want to know where the hell those bras came from and i will periodically wind up in a DD game with someone who is not a ren fair babe and has never had cause to socially wear a corset who's like you know my character is a high noble lady and she wears a bra because of course it is demeaning and sexist. And I'm like, no, a corsist is, of course it is socially expected, quite comfortable and would have been tailored for your noble lady. Where the fuck did that bra come from? And I think that raises another good like logic question of people will look at say things like the corset and they'll say, 
oh, they, they were horrible torture devices that people were so uncomfortable wearing and yada, 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 which is all crap. I have done more physical ma- manual labor in a corset and had zero problems, much more comfortable than a bra. But not question, then why were people doing it for hundreds of years? Mm-hmm. You can layer all the arguments of, oh, but the patriarchy, oh, but oppression. Like, no, most people will not put up with that for that long without modifying it to suit their needs. Yep. And that's exactly what people did with, with corsetry. And you go through multiple iterations of corsetry that it's matching, you know, what the fashionable silhouette of the time period is. But in each of those iterations, it is meeting the needs of a woman's body, which is to support back, bust, mm-hmm. um, support skirts, the weight of skirts. There's, um, a- there's a reason for it. And it's not just to make people miserable. Like yeah. that, that's, that's an illogical reason to have something in a world. Yeah. There's a point in the devil wears Prada where the Miranda Priestley character basically goes off on how all fashion is culturally tied. And that is true. You don't necessarily want to get a fashion degree so that you can write a fantasy novel that will bore a lot of people, but you should look at the fact that the climate, the societal situations, the wars that have been going on, the accessibility of materials, all of that is very much going to affect fashion in your fantasy world, is going to affect what people are wearing and what they view as appropriate to wear. So I do totally want to see the world that had the elf dwarf war and the halfling green piece <laughs> to, right. to make that all work. Cause that's beautiful. I love Please that build me a D and D world where there are bras challenge for our listeners out there. Are not cause the corset's probably more comfortable. Yeah. So just given the stuff that D and D characters are doing, the corset is almost certainly more comfortable if it fits correctly. And by that, I mean, if it fits correctly versus bras that absolutely fit correctly. Yes, because I would argue that an ill-fitting bra is even more uncomfortable than an ill-fitting corset, in almost all cases. Yes, most, yeah, and and I would say too, it's almost like it's harder to find a correct fit bra nowadays, mm-hmm. just because historically they, we did have manufactured corsets as well, but for a very long time they were made relatively bespoke. Yeah. So it would actually fit your human body, which is another thing that I feel like logically we can think about: like, how are people getting things? You know, how how do items enter people's houses? How do you go about your general kind of like low scale down home economics? And then thinking about logicking out like all of those supply chains and how it got there. Um, and not that you have to you know, do that every time you have something enter a character's house, though, if you're if you're us, maybe, maybe you do. And that's OK. Judgment free zone. But thinking about that too, like just if someone has something, where did it come from? How did they get it? How easy would it be to replace? You know, is this a world where you can break stuff and get new stuff? Or is this a world where if you have something, you have to keep it forever? Or if it breaks, you need to learn how to fix it. And mm-hmm. are those well, skills common or, or or rare? I mean, that's a huge difference between kind of how most of us live right now and how most people lived historically is just the skills base of fixing things. Yes. I mean, 50 years ago, the, the skill base to fix your car if something went wrong in, you know, in your driveway was a reasonable skill that a person might have. But it, today's cars, that's almost impossible because so much of it requires incredibly specialized diagnostic equipment that 
that a, nor- a regular person's just not going to have unless they're running an auto shop. Right. It gets harder and harder. You know, if you're playing with societal expectations, what do you, you can either build starting from a question of, okay, what do elf family structures actually look like? If an average lifespan is 700 years, what does an elf family structure actually look like? When does puberty happen? You know, are we doing a lot of authors will say that elves age at the same rate as humans and then just sort of stop? So do you have 16-year-old elves having issues with teen pregnancy when their parents are like, kiddo, you've got another 675 years to live. This is a problem. Or is that considered abuse in elf culture and they don't actually hit the point where you would be okay to have that relationship until you're 100, 125? How are they splitting things up? And so you can start with the point of, I have elves that live 700 years and this is, I'm going to build the the culture from there. Or you can go, I want an elf culture where they live for 700 years, but the way that it works is for the first 60 years, you basically live as if you were a human. You do everything very quickly and you have your kids and you raise your kids and then you have nothing more to do with them and you go off to be long lived. How do I get there and backward engineer it? And you can come at world building from either direction but you can't really change in the middle. I think that you raise a good point about, too, with world building, as soon as you start throwing magic at it, it gets more complicated, not less, typically. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that sometimes there's a impulse to use magic as a stopgap or to patch things that were kind of like, well, because magic and kind of hand wave it. But like that's that can be a very dangerous impulse because you introduce more complexities that have to be answered as you put it have you know did you earn having that there does it make sense does it have a place within society as a whole within nature as a whole within everything as a whole what what place does it hold like how do you approach magic in a world i feel like that's very world by world even with the same author it's it's going to be absolutely case by case based and very determined by the needs of the story and the needs of the world and the rules that you've set as being inviolate. Violate? Inviolate? That's a very complicated word. It is. I like both pronunciations personally. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if you want to have a world where absolutely you're sticking with that D&D model and elves and humans go on adventures together, you're going to have to figure out how you got there with the magic aspect and hope that you don't wind up in the position that D&D is wound up in, uh, which is a great example of both forward and backward world building because they never meant to world build anything at all. But when it started, Gary Gygax, who was in an earlier time period and was working very much off the Tolkien model, called all the different types of player character that you could be. You had your class and you had your race which created an implication with the modern usage of the word that elves were just a racial type of humans. But elf dude who lives for 700 years naturally and can talk to trees is not another racial type of human. So they are now trying to find a different word for that relationship that has less in the way of built-in you know, assumptions about human biology and less racism and all of that. But the trouble is we've all been using that word to mean that thing for so long that everything else feels wrong. 
you know, if I tell you I've got a character who is a human woman from the waist up and a fish from the waist down, there's a word that you probably both just had pop into your head for what I am talking about. And it's probably the same word. And it doesn't sound weird to you. Mermaid is the word we all use for that. And we use it because that is what caught on when Christian Anderson wrote The Little Mermaid, because he used that for the first story that really popularized it outside of Don't Fuck With The Marrow or The Marrow Will Drown Your Ass. But there have been dozens of other words we used for people like that. Um, Finfolk, which was the most popular in Orkney, sounds really weird, doesn't it? Finfolk. That does not sound like a good cognate for mermaid, but it's actually better by modern standards. It's not gendered. It applies to all of the people who are fish from the waist down. And it actually explains why we are distinguishing them from the humans. But when I say finfolk, nobody really follows because it's not a popular word anymore. Even though I really like it. I do it is like a good it. word. I like it a lot. Yeah, <laughs> so do I. But so you've got the problem of trying to rename race in role-playing games has just been an argument for you. No one wants to use species because species is too clinical. I'm very fond of clade, which is an even more clinical term, but it's one we hear less. So it's a little easier to pretend it's a fancy fantasy word, you know, and changing those words when we have to fight the world building of the culture the author came from within the context of the world itself it's the Watsonian versus Doyleist problem, and we slam into it a lot. I think that that problem raises um, kind of a good question of when is the appropriate time to question your instincts? Like, not necessarily instincts as much as biases, that those are kind of mm -hmm. baked into what we do and that there are times that it's like, oh, okay, this sounds like a good idea. Why do I think this is a good idea? Why do I think this way? Is it, Do I think this way because... I've actually thought it through or am I making assumptions about how stuff works because of how my society works or because of how I have understood things to work or because even as you're saying, just the words we use to describe things. I think the right time to question is constantly. Um, sometimes <laughs> your answers will not work. Sometimes your answers will be wrong. Uh, and you that is why we use sensitivity readers and other people to do cultural checking now. Uh, we should have been using them a lot longer, a lot longer than we have been. But fortunately, that is currently a thing that is normal and standard and expected to get people with different sets of biases to come in and check things and look things over and say, oh, no, this is not OK. No, I totally agree with with everything you're saying there that I, I was thinking my son was telling me that he in one of his film classes, he had they just watched a movie called uh, A Man Called Horse, which at the time, if any if either you're familiar with this movie, it's basically about a British guy who gets in, you know, the Old West who gets kidnapped by Indians and then lives with them or Native Americans rather. See, because but that's what they use yeah. in the movie because <laughs> and the movie was made in the 70s and was praised for being very, like, very aware and very sensitive. But, like, if you watch it today, you're like, what the fuck is with this movie? Like, everything about it is terrible and wrong. But at the time it was made, they were like, oh, this is this is the real deal. This is the truth. And, you know, mm -hmm. well, because <laughs> nobody, like, really asked the people involved. 
Or if they did, it may have been a case <laughs> of you have to see this version of the real deal before the real version will be acceptable. Yeah. You're starting to see a big movement in younger queer communities to repudiate the Rocky Horror Picture Show because the Rocky Horror Picture Show is problematic. You know, it it equates transvestitism with transsexuality. You know, it doesn't use the right words. It's rapey. It's got all of these issues. It was also a cultural flashpoint that gave queer and gender nonconforming kids a safe space to exist in. I know a lot of people, myself included, who were legitimately saved by Rocky Horror. Now, if you made that exact same movie today, I would have questions about what you were thinking because it is problematic in many ways. But for the time, Rocky Horror needed to exist. We needed to have that stepping stone to move toward a better time. And that is why I think it's important sometimes that we stop and look at things in the context of when they were made and what was around them. There's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Pulowski assumes that Data is going to want to be present for the birth of a baby because she has assumed that he's filling the father role. And it's it's very heteronormative and kind of cis-sexist when you watch it today. Like, oh, why are these assumptions being made? Why does she think that a man is needed? But at the time, men had been allowed in the delivery room in hospitals for less than two years. So the idea that in the future, if a man was married to a person who was giving birth, he would be expected to be there and that would be the norm was actually very futuristic and very forward thinking. The miniskirts also in Star Trek come up a lot where those were a contribution from the women on the show who wanted to be able to wear miniskirts because they represented freedom in the time and were back to fashion as a part of culture. A lot of people look at those miniskirts now and go, oh, that's demeaning, that's sexist. But for the women who were wearing them when the show was filming, that was empowering and that was freeing. So much is context always. And sometimes we have to have one conversation before we can have another conversation. Mm -hmm. And if that first conversation doesn't happen, and it has to happen often, I think, in awkward ways, because we don't necessarily have the language for it yet. And that language can come in terms both of words and in imagery and all kinds of things, you know, parallels and, and allegories and all of this stuff. Like we have to muddle our way through early conversations in order to get to, you know, the later conversations. conversations later. I mean, you know, you always kind of think about, well, what are we talking about now? How are we talking about things now that in 20 years, someone's going to look back and be like, oh my word, can you believe that we used to say this, that we used to compare okay. these two things? Like, there's a humility there, I think, that we have to kind of remember that we're all we're all doing the best we can. The best we can is only yep. as good as right now can let it be. Yep. And I do think that one of the things we have gotten worse at culturally, along with the decline in, we don't actually teach people how to research anymore. And that is a complaint I hear a lot from my friends who teach that they are getting people, not even necessarily kids, they're getting teens and 20-somethings and whatnot in their classes who have never been taught how to do research beyond going to Google and typing it in. As, as someone who teaches, I, I think that you're right. And I think that the idea, too, of just general information literacy and, like, how mm -hmm. do you assess things and how do you think about the sources that you're getting? And sources can be correct, 
but still be heavily biased. But still be biased or out of date. One perspective, and that, and that doesn't that doesn't mean they're wrong or useless. They can mm-hmm. still be very useful. But you have to know what you're working with right. and whose lens you're looking through. That was the point I lost. So we have gotten worse about looking at copyright and release dates. You know, I had someone, and and this is personal to one of my books. So oh, let's just make it all about me. But I had somebody <laughs> write a genuinely excoriating review of one of my books fairly recently within the last 18 months, because in that book, I had referenced Harry Potter without a content warning, and I had dead named Elliot Page. And in both cases, that book had been published before J.K. Rowling boarded the bigotry bus to Turf Town, and before Elliot Page had come out as trans. So I, with the tools I had at the time, with the available materials, had written this book, and it was a book set in the modern day, so those were reasonable references to have made, and now I've got people saying that there is proof that I'm transphobic, because there's a Harry Potter reference in a book that includes Elliot Page's dead name. All it takes is flipping to the release date on the front, on the copyright page, and you can see that I am not Cassandra, I could not have known but we don't check that anymore. You also see a lot of that aimed at children's media, you know, um, Steven Universe or Korra, Legend, you know, The Legend of Korra, the Avatar spinoff. Well, why did they not have as much queer content as She-Ra or the Owl House? Because they were blazing the trail that She-Ra and the Owl House could then walk down more briskly. And remembering when things happen, the order of history is a part of world building. Uh, it is very important if you're building your magical world and you want to have fireball be a relatively newly developed spell then the first person that figured out how to cast light cigarette could have been 10 years before the fireball person but you should never be in a position where you're reading a chapter about lit cigarette guy and wondering why he doesn't just fireball his enemies yeah this the space between things i think is something that we have to develop a respect for mm-hmm. and an instinct for and, and yes, I was going to remind our listeners that that when, again, did you begin publishing books, Shannon? 2009. So, yes, we are, we have histories ourselves and go back, you know, decade plus, and hopefully we'll continue to have histories going into the future. So imploring you all to not hold us responsible for the things that we cannot yet know, because we are <laughs> not, in fact, um, omnipotent and all-knowing. And especially when you're traditionally published, you genuinely do not have the power to go back and fix things. <laughs> no. And that is, even though it means that occasionally there are less than perfect things in our published work and things that we might wish we could go back and fix, it's it's probably a good thing that eventually we lose the power to edit. I think I would still be re-releasing my first book on an annual basis with the uh, honest, this time it's correct edition if I were allowed to go back and edit (laughs) endlessly. And I am far from the only one. Yes, I have to be cut off. It's a very good thing that I have a deadline where I turn it in and it is done or else Mm -hmm. I could noodle for ever an upsettingly long time, if not forever. Which would be a real shame because I also like going on and writing new things and building new worlds and creating new stuff. Sooner or later, you have to let it go. And yes. So that is, in fact, you can't freedom. Keep, you that... <laughs> can't keep tweaking and tweaking and tweaking, especially after the fact, even if the world has changed and, you know, you wish you had not made the choices you made. But even mm-hmm. still, you have to, you know, if we, especially when it was impossible for you to not know. I mean, that that 
that that that review of yours boggles my mind just because you like that's an easy search to like be like when was this piece of information right. available yeah and <laughs> i i generally try not to either internalize or get angry at bad reviews because reviews are not for me reviews are for readers but that one really bothered me to the point that clearly i remember it because it's like y'all if i could see the future if i was genuinely blessed with precognition I would be a multi-billionaire. I would have invested in so many things. Like, I would be one of the rich you wanted to eat. I would not be shopping at Target and writing mid-list fantasy novels to keep my lights on. But every lo- every novel I did write would be flawless. There, I mean, that's the dream, always. But yeah, I mean, yeah. it's also... I try and keep in mind, especially with, say, younger readers, that their idea of what has is and has always been... You know, you know, is massive changes that we've, you know, that we've lived through. And at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, those things that, you know, our parents or grandparents were changes that they had going up in their lives. Then that's that's the thing that to, to us, is, you know, has always existed. Right. And yes, that that even though I do not think of myself as aged, I, I really should accept that I am a bit aged. You are aged five minutes after you're born by certain standards. This is, this is true. But like my my grandmother used to talk about how she would walk to school without shoes on and uh, how she and her siblings during hunting season would actually carry their hunting rifles to school because they had shooting club afterward. If I had gone to school without shoes, the state would have taken me away from my mother. Just as a starting point. Uh, but certainly no one was openly carrying rifles to my elementary school. That was just not a thing. We didn't have a VCR when I was a kid. We didn't have the internet, obviously. I look at kids, you know, at kids today, getting back into the old the oldness, <laughs> but I look at kids today whose parents are like, you'd better call me every half hour so I know where you are and I'm tracking you on your phone. I know where you are. And I'm like, no. I'm not that aged, but when I was your age, I was completely feral. I got home from school. I did my homework. I said, hi, mom, I'm going out to play. And then she hoped I would come back by nine. When when, when I was young, they literally had things on TV to remind it's parents. It's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your <laughs> Do you know where your are? <laughs> Do you know where your children are? It's like, do you remember you have children? Just, yeah. you know, oh, just right. check up on that. <laughs> And, and we survived, and that is not saying it was better then, but it is frequently difficult for me to reconcile my idea of a normal childhood with what people are actually experiencing today. And even there, my normal childhood is not your normal childhood. You know, my, my parents were never married, and uh, my father's side of the family, we operate carnivals. So speaking of fixing things, I knew how to disassemble and reassemble a Ferris wheel by the time I was nine years old. And if we ever get to go to a county county fair together or a state fair, here's a bit of world building for you. If I tell you not to ride something, don't ride it. I am the boss of you when it comes to ride safety, because I know all of the inspectors currently operating on the West Coast, and I can tell you if the safety certificate was forged. That's a very useful skill. This is, yes. 
you know, but that also made me think about um, when Stranger Things first started and I watch it with my son. Mm. He's like to him, it was this foreign world. And I'm like, no, no, that's that was that was my childhood right there. Right. And even no magic the, monsters, but still. But yeah. even the rest, for the yes. people whose childhood it was, it wasn't everyone's because that was my childhood, too, except that my childhood was not defined by men. I stopped watching Stranger Things in season one. When Elle, who had been raised in a lab and didn't know the word for friend, looked at herself in the mirror, dressed in a traditionally feminine manner for the first time, which is not something world building she would logically have seen in the lab, looked at herself in the long blonde wig and went, pretty. And I'm like, no, this is this is men's idea <laughs> of my yeah. childhood. I don't need to be here for this. I was not actually invited. Um, and that is people writing their own childhood, but they are writing it having been little boys in that time period who never considered that the childhood of a little girl might not have looked like that, that maybe we didn't want to be defined by them 100% of the time. Yeah, I feel like Stranger Things needed like a counterpart show that was like written for the girls by the girls in a way because they kept trying to fold in more female characters mm -hmm. as the show progressed but you're right it was always it was always more that from well and again my childhood was not that childhood and the fact that i lived in the country and i couldn't walk to my friends houses so i was like is that actually how it worked i don't know i was roaming around the woods like a changeling child so right but so much just does not make sense when you start actually trying to look at it without the uh, the deeper information. And that includes things like Stranger Things. How do we get from that childhood to this childhood? It It's difficult to make the leap unless you start looking into the societal and historical information. I think a lot of world building is writing stuff you'll never use. A lot of world building winds up being okay, I need to know about the Elf Dwarf War. Nobody who lives in my world cares anymore because it was hundreds of years ago and they're not history majors. But if I don't know about it, then I can't explain why all these people are wearing bras. Exactly. That there's 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 the instinct for knowing what to put on the page, and that's not the same instinct as knowing what you have to know to put on the page. Mm -hmm. I have reams and reams of documentation that will never go into books just yep. because it would be boring to 99% of the readers and they don't want it, but. I do a lot of work for Magic the Gathering these days. I'm having a wonderful time there. It's a very awesome place. Um, but every time we have a new set come out, we do what's called a world document. And that is full of world building notes and art that doesn't wind up in the card set, explaining how everything fits together. And that's never printed anywhere. I don't understand why we're not selling these things. We should be. The magic audience would buy them in a heartbeat. But all of this documentation is necessary because we can't explain why Nahiri wants to rebuild the core empire unless we are either A, willing to write a book about the core empire, which we are not, or B, understand ourselves what the core empire was. I feel like that would make an amazing coffee table book, by the way. It really Just would. Throwing that out there. Come on, wizards. Publish our <laughs> shit. Someday the, the Magic the Gathering version of the Silmarillion will, will come out. and <laughs> Oh, that'll be delightful. Yeah. <laughs> I'll probably help write it. It's, that is always the dream. That just your pack of feral notes that are just for you. That that alone <laughs> is is something that, that's publishable and sellable. And, and Yep. Well, when I was like 11, they did a, a guy, an illustrated guide to Xanth, which was Piers Anthony's fantasy world, which I was way too into as an 11 year old. 
<laughs> and uh, I always thought that was the dream. Like, I just wanted to write something where they would do a book like that. So I couldn't imagine anything better. I never got into Xanth. <laughs> that is probably for the best. Yeah, I, I read the incarnations and that was traumatizing enough. <laughs> you know, the thing about Xanth is that if you read it as a kid, you didn't realize how upsetting some of that stuff was until you went back and looked at it later. And this is not one of those cases of, oh, you got oversensitive as you got older or whatever. This is, Piers Anthony has a weird obsession with writing about the underpants of underaged female characters. He's also, especially in the incarnations, obsessed with which ones are virgins and not or not. Yeah, and it's just like, <laughs> they let me read this because it didn't have swearing. And uh, maybe, maybe a little light swearing would have been better than, oh, oh. Every adult man around you wants to sniff your underwear and you should just be cool with that. Yeah, there's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that was also back when there was a mindset that anything that was fantasy was for kids. And mm -hmm. therefore, that was that created problems. Certainly. That did. I mean, everything yeah. creates problems one way or another. But uh, <laughs> there were some special issues in that box. <laughs> and, and, you know. It's funny because as as a parent of a voracious reader, there is no way that I can keep up with everything mm -hmm. that my kid reads. Like it's impossible. That would be, you know, I, you know, everything that I would read would be, you know, what she's reading, and she would still outread me because she has Time. fewer life responsibilities yeah. than I do. <laughs> I will say that as an overly voracious reader, most of the things I read did no damage, and if it was something that was genuinely above my age level, I skipped it. I just didn't understand it, and I moved on. So, like, I read the Clan of the Cave Bear books. I have no idea how much sex is actually in them. I haven't gone back and reread them. Uh, I read Stephen King's The Dead Zone and just thought it was very, very boring. And it wasn't until I went back at like 22 and reread it that I went, wow, this is really sexy. Huh. I just didn't see it. Elvira, yeah. Mistress of the Dark was one of my favorite movies. And I didn't realize how incredibly double entendre filled it is. So, kids are better at filtering the world around them than we realize. They have to be. Or they would all be so traumatized every single day by everything around them. And that is not run out and hand your children Clive Barker. I am not endorsing that statement or suggesting that it is the position of this podcast. That is just <laughs> if your kid comes home with Clive Barker and is genuinely interested in it, maybe there are worse things you could do than let them keep it. I think it's interesting, too, that kids self-select away from stuff that they don't want to be reading. Mm -hmm. Um that my daughter's absolutely picked up on stuff and been like, oh, you know what? I'm not, mm, not interested, actually. No, thanks. And like, yeah. that's fine. You don't have to be interested. That's, you know, if you find yourself interested in a few years, you can swing back around to that book. That's, there will be options. That's fine. And so it's interesting, too, though, that I feel like talking about, you know, world building and, and having instincts for world building, that the books that I have noticed that I loved as a kid and that my, my kid latches on to respect the intelligence of kids instincts for world building mm -hmm. and they make it make sense and i think that that's you know kind of testament to what you're saying about making it make sense yep. that any reader appreciates that kids will absolutely know when it doesn't make sense i really like starting with biology that is is probably one of the things that i am both best at and most overly infatuated with uh i wrote a book that started with the question of what if mermaids were real what if the reason that we all have stories about mermaids is because they were really real and they really existed and they still exist and also they want to eat you. 
So I knew I wanted carnivore mermaids. And then I spoke to a whole lot of marine biologists until I found a way to make carnivore mermaids work. Like to make the biology of it line up with what you could actually put in an ocean and have survive. And that went some places that I would not have chosen to go, but that the research took me to. And by following the research and letting the world building be in charge, I was able to do some stuff that I honestly think was way more interesting than I would have come up with on my own. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fascinating how many doors you can open for yourself by like being open mm -hmm. to what makes sense instead of what you like want to be true. Yeah, but like if you want to to kind of get an idea of what kind of world building works for you and you're not ready to commit, I actually do suggest going back to Dungeons and Dragons, pick it up and find the first thing that doesn't make sense to you. Find the first thing that makes you go, wait, what? And just poke at it with a stick for a couple of days and poke at it and poke at it until it either starts making sense, you find an answer for yourself, or you figure out that it's never going to make sense inside the setting. Uh, one of my favorite things to poke at, there is a spell called Message, which lasts six seconds. It's line of sight, and it is a level, it is a cantrip, so it's it's not even a level one spell. And you can just look at someone and beam six seconds of telepathic speech into their head. Boom. Then there is a third level spell called Sending, which is 25 words and can cross planes of reality. So you can literally send across dimensions, but it's only 25 words. I will insist to my dying day and have this argument regularly with my DM that there is a spell between them that's missing. There should be a level one or two spell that is 100 miles, 30 words, whatever, but it's not that jump from line of sight to great cosmic everywhere. Um, so find the missing spell, find the question about elf society, find that this makes no sense, and then just start poking it. And that's kind of a fanfic approach because you are working in someone else's world, but you are working in a very ad hoc world. There has never been a sit down and make a dedicated world for D&D &D that actually worked. There are settings that have been designed, but they're all built upon by handing them off to the players and seeing what happens. There's a lot of value to world building that starts with, I really like this thing, except... Here's the thing that drives me crazy and the needling on that. Yeah. Well, and I'm also not saying that this is the way to get your own world. I'm saying this is a way to play around with world building concepts with less commitment. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, people are kind of uncomfortable with like, I just don't quite have the instincts there. I don't really know what I'm doing yet. I think that playing in, in someone else's sandbox can be really smart because they've done kind of like a framework work for you that you can then come in and kind of like do the job of, of, of the editor and like poking mm -hmm. at it and, and working with something that already exists. I feel like one thing that um, I suggest to people sometimes for just kind of like just open up your curiosity and imagination is exactly what you just talked about um, creating your mermaid book, Shannon, which is asking what if, what if this was real? Mm -hmm. What if this worked this way instead? What if this event had happened just this way differently? What, what, what is everything that that would touch? And right. I think that getting used to that idea of like, okay, so if, you know, if this battle went differently, well, yes, this war would have ended differently, but what else would have happened differently? What places does this event touch? Yes. If we had had, if dragons were real, 
what else would that change? What else would that affect in society? Yes, maybe we'd have dragons as part of our military or whatever. That's where, you know, you kind of like jumped you. But what else? What else would you be having mm-hmm. dragons involved in? And just keep asking those like, but what if? But what if? And what remember, the, the further back you go, the more everything changes. I really like pointing out to people that technically every single modern Sherlock Holmes adaptation is alternate history fantasy. Because if you want Sherlock Holmes to be a person in the modern day and Arthur Conan Doyle not to have written those stories, the entirety of detective fiction, all mystery fiction, and a lot of other things change. What did Agatha Christie actually do with her life if Sherlock Holmes was not there to have created that particular mystery genre? You know, or even take it closer in. What if Peter Beagle had said no when that animation studio approached him about making a cartoon of The Last Unicorn? Um, well, among many other things, I'm dead. I am only alive today because my little pony existed. And that sounds dramatic, but it is true. And my little pony was greenlit by Hasbro because of The Last Unicorn. So you can eliminate not only me, but a lot of other people from reality just by having Peter Beagle say, I don't think this is the right format for my story and not allowing the last unicorn movie to go forward. Yeah, playing ripple effect is a fun one. Yes. Or thinking about the impact of the choices that we make in world building. So we are coming up on the end of our time together. Yes, we are. Um, and it is, it is our tradition um, that we ask our guests to leave us a little piece of world building that we can place into the world that we build together um, on air when we, when we don't have guests with us usually. Um, so a little, little tidbit or um, fun fact that we can tuck into our co-created world from you to remember you by. Oh, that's very sweet. <laughs> Does your world have humans? Yes, yes. We, we only have humans. We don't have any other whatever word we would choose to call them. And when I when you say humans, do you mean biologically cognate to what we are here in this world? Yes. Okay. Um, so humans are the only primate that does not generate our own vitamin C. Every other kind of primate makes vitamin C inside the body and thus doesn't get scurvy. We were fine losing that ability because we lived in dense forests with lots and lots of fruit. We had vitamin C all the time and forever. And the history of human expansion across the world really has been a history of seeking out new sources of vitamin C so that all of our scar tissue didn't just dissolve like wet cheesecloth and leave us flopping around on the floor. Uh, which is gross and horrible, but is actually true. Um, We have cultivated a lot of things to get more vitamin C. We have fought wars that were changed directionally over vitamin C. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it is true. And during World War II, when the British Isles were brigaded and they couldn't get oranges in, British school children were at severe risk of developing scurvy and rickets due to a lack of vitamin C. And what happened was the primary grower of black currants in England said, we will donate our entire crop to give juice to the children of, of, of Britain to make sure that they are able to stay strong throughout this war. So you got black currant juice with your breakfast every morning and orange juice has fallen completely out of favor in that one small sliver of the world. So world building 
whatever. You have to have had a primary source of vitamin C for your population. One country lost all access to that source of vitamin C two generations ago, but was able to find an alternate source that most of the rest of your world thinks is disgusting. <laughs> and because they pivoted over to mashed caterpillars with a strong vitamin C content or whatever as their daily treatment against scurvy, that is now a food tradition that outsiders have to deal with when visiting because the idea of drinking that primary source or consuming that primary source is now revolting to them. I love this so much. <laughs> Very much my jam. Here. Perfect and fantastic. <laughs> and I'm sure it has a home in our world. Thank you, Shannon. And thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. And can you remind us where listeners can find you on the web if they want to start uh, working on that extensive catalog of books? Spell my name, uh, which is Seanan, S-E-A-N-A-N. You can find me. I am at SeananMcGuire.com. I am also easily accessible on Tumblr, where I spend a lot of my time. Um, and I am on Blue Sky, but not frequently enough. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at worldbuildcasts, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com we also have a discord chat room linked in the about the show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast we'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts